And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council and they set up false witnesses who said this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us and gazing at him all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. All right, you guys ready to get into God's word? All right, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open them up to Acts chapter 6. We're looking at the verses 8 through 15, which Tiffany read for us. Now, if you are a 90s kid like me, I was born in the 80s, but you know, 90s is really what I remember. If you're a 90s kid like me, you might remember a very popular tune that Gatorade put out featuring a very popular player in the NBA by the name of Michael Jordan. Okay, you guys know Michael Jordan? (laughs) Do you remember the Gatorade commercial that they put out, Like Mike? I want to be like Mike, a really cute commercial. You had all these little kids wanting to be like Michael Jordan, and then, of course, they're pitching Gatorade. They would do this throughout the 90s. I think even in 1998, they put out the famous one where everybody's dancing because Michael Jordan was dancing, and so the kids dance to be like Mike. And then they show Larry Bird. He's just got this staunch, stoic face, and it ends with him saying, I'm not going to dance. You know, Gatorade commercial. Then in 2015, they reintroduced Michael Jordan and the one, uh, Be Like Mike song to the new generation, and they, they came out with it again. Um, and I'm telling you, when I saw the, when they celebrated their 50th anniversary, put out that, that commercial in, in 2015, it brought back all my childhood memories. I was one of those kids who wanted to be like Mike. Now, one of... <laughs> No, I, yeah, I'm going to clarify, I wasn't like Mike, I wanted to be like Mike. But I, uh, I was one of those guys, I could never afford the Air Jordans, so I had the knockoffs. Thank God for Walmart, you know. And I actually had a dad who would buy, at one point it was the Shaq shoes, you remember that? And he kind of would take a permanent marker and change it and try to make it look like Michael Jordan. My friends caught on really quick, it was more embarrassing at school, but God bless my dad for trying to help. Um, but so I didn't, I didn't have the, the shoes, couldn't afford the shoes, but I did buy the sweatband and in MJ style, I would only wear it on my left arm right here, just like MJ did. And I had MJ all over my walls in my room from newspaper clippings, magazine cutouts and posters. I, I would lower my basketball hoop in the yard and practice soaring through the air like MJ. I would even have my tongue out like Michael Jordan. Now, here's my question. Who did you want to be growing up? 
I mean, every kid wanted to be someone, right? I love the YouTube uh, videos of, there's this YouTube video that's gone around. It's a reel of a pastor's kid, and he's practicing baptizing kids in their backyard pool, this little, little kid. It's obvious that they want to be like their dad. Who did you want to be like when you were growing up? Whoever it was that you wanted to imitate growing up, here's the deal. Every single Christ-following adult, and child for that sake, should seek to imitate Jesus. I mean, the goal of a Christian is to be like the Savior, right? In fact, Paul writes about this in Philippians 3.10. Oh, I'm jumping ahead. That's okay. Paul writes about this in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, and here it is, becoming like him in his death. Growing more and more like Jesus should be our life goal. Now, today in our text, we meet a man who is very much like Jesus, In fact, Luke describes Stephen's character, his ministry, and his death. And we're going to be looking at this the next few weeks. His death is the first martyrdom we read about in the book of Acts. And we know that persecution has already began. It began with threats. Those threats grew to include flogging. And in the passage we're looking at, uh, well, we're looking at in the next few weeks, it includes a stoning, okay? So now my focus on the, in the next few weeks, it's not on dying for Jesus. Instead, what I'm really hoping for you is that you wrestle with a question in the next few weeks. And this question is this, do I really want to be like Jesus? Do I really want to be like Jesus? Because we're looking at a guy who was like Jesus. This, this dude didn't just say he wanted to be like Jesus. His goal in life was really to be like Jesus. And being like Jesus meant that he had to stir the pot. Sometimes being like Jesus means we're going to have to stir the pot a little, right? Here's what I want you to see from his life today. You, you Stephen lived around a lot of skeptics. He lived, he was surrounded by non-believers. You live a life surrounded by lost people. What, what do I mean when I say lost people? If you're new to church, that, that, that term might be very uh, confusing to you. A lost person is someone who has not recognized Jesus Christ as God and recognized their need for forgiveness. But it isn't just believing in our, in our head that Christ died for us. It means being constrained by that reality. So that truth, it it presses in on us. It grips and it holds. It impels and controls. It surrounds us and literally won't let us get away from it. To be a Christian is to turn from all that we know of sin with all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of God. That's, That's a lifelong process where a person becomes progressively more and more like Jesus. And at the heart of the Christian life is repentance. It's not just a decision that has us saying, man, we're terribly sorry, and then leaves us unchanged. Salvation is to really become remade in the likeness of Jesus Christ. And repentance is at the very heart of it. You and I are surrounded by people who do not know Jesus that way. Now, Here's what we see from the book of Acts, and in fact, the rest of the New Testament. If you and I, as followers of Jesus, don't rock the boat a little bit, then nothing changes. Stagnant water eventually leads to destruction. It leads to death. So sometimes, like Stephen, who we're going to see today, you got to rock the boat a little bit. If you're going to move stagnant water, you got to rock the boat. We see someone in our text today that you could call a holy troublemaker. 
we see a boat rocker. He's not afraid to hold anything back when confronted by certain religious leaders. And I want you to take note of, of what that would look like in your life. What does that mean? Okay, and we're going to start in verse 8, all right? Here's what I want you to write down as we look at this. If you're taking notes, and by the way, I have worked really hard, all you young people, at making sure. My wife says, if you're, she's, a, she's got education and as a background. Justin, if you're going to reach young people, if you don't have something for them on Sunday because you want young people to come into the main service, then you better have notes that they want to follow. So do a few fill in the blanks. So that's what I've done today for you young people. You can print that out. You can get that on our website. Website. I want you to follow the sermon, okay? Here it is. Ordinary people filled with the Spirit can do extraordinary things. All right? Ordinary people filled with the Spirit can do extraordinary things. Look at verse 8 with me. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So here the Holy Spirit works in and through Stephen in a very supernatural way. But he's a natural man with a supernatural enablement. I want you to see this, okay? He's a natural man. He's like you. He's like me. He's just a regular fella until the Holy Spirit fills him. And, then, and he yields and he submits himself to the person, the presence, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, I, I want to be, be careful here. But sometimes... Pentecostals focus on all the wrong things when it comes to the Holy Spirit, and our lives don't reflect somebody who's full of the Holy Spirit. Because somebody who's full of the Holy Spirit is full of grace and power, and they're doing great wonders and signs among the people. Great wonders and signs are done. People are healed. The Bible's taught. People become Christians. Demons are cast out. These are the things that I absolutely believe will happen through your lives as you yield to the Holy Spirit. I believe you're going to experience some of this in the workplace, coffee shops, at the gym, but you've got to allow the Holy Spirit to work through you. You've got to yield yourself and submit yourself to the Holy Spirit. Look with me at verse 9. It says, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians, and, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from uh, Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So here's, here's the thing. We know that in Jerusalem there was one big central place of worship known as the temple. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know sacrifices were made in the temple. This is where the priests would work. A lot of the spiritual life took place within this building structure. Now, because of the captivity, a little history lesson, if you don't know the, the Old Testament, the Old Testament tells the story of the Israelites, God's chosen people, and they, they kind of go through these seasons where they, they're obedient to God, then they're disobedient. They receive the blessing, then the hand of blessing comes off them. At one point in their history, they're taken captive into, into Babylon. So it was there in Babylon they developed the institution that we know as the synagogue. Well, here's the deal. You never read about the synagogues in the Old Testament. Be suddenly they appear in the New Testament, and that's because they develop between the Old Testament and the New Testament captivity. All right? That's, that's when the synagogues really took place. So by the time we get to the New Testament, 
They are everywhere. In fact, Jesus in Capernaum went into the synagogue, the text tells us. And, and by the way, if you go on our Holy Land tour, you get to see that synagogue in Capernaum. You get to see where Jesus taught. That was one of the, the areas or the locations where they actually said, hey, we can tell you with 100% accuracy that Jesus taught from this synagogue, this very place that you're standing right now. I'm not throwing a commercial out there to go or anything, but... Well, I am. You need to go on that trip. It's life-changing. Amazing. Now, Jesus went into the synagogue and all of the cities around Galilee. The Talmud tells us, or the Jewish writings tell us, that at this time there were 390 synagogues in Jerusalem alone. 390. So we could kind of think of the synagogue back then pretty similar to the churches today. So each synagogue, they had its own culture. Right? They had its own, own style, its own DNA that were different uh, from other synagogues. And they just kind of sort of got along and saw things that way. You know, just like any church today, they, we've got our own little cliques, our own little groups. We do things different. And you're going to draw people to your church that are attracted to that DNA and that culture. That's what was happening all these years ago in the synagogue as well. Same kind of thing. You had 390 synagogues in Jerusalem alone. The synagogue that's mentioned in here is the synagogue of the freedmen. This is the synagogue uh, that was compromised of ex-slaves, freed slaves, or the family members of freed slaves. So you get why they called it the freedmen. Now, we know that Pompey, the general of, of Rome, he took an enormous amount of different people from North Africa, Asia Minor, as his personal slaves in the city of Rome. They eventually were freed in Rome, and a lot of them who were Jewish made their way back to Jerusalem, and they established a synagogue. Again, I want you to know something. History supports the Bible. History does support the Bible. Whether you believe in God or not, a lot of people aren't going to argue that the, the Bible is very accurate when it comes to history. In fact, on our tour in Israel, we were with somebody who was not a believer. And, and he was helping us. He was a guide. Uh, now, if that scares you, don't worry. He's just one of the guides. But he, he kind of gives us uh, background information on Israel and the things that are going on in the current day. But I had a lot of great conversations with him. And there were different times where I would s say, hey, you know, at this location, you're seeing something that the Bible describes. Does it challenge your faith a little bit? His answer was, look, I don't believe in God, but I've never said I don't believe in the Bible. He goes, as a historian, the Bible is very accurate. It's a good description of history. It's, a, it's an accurate source. I'm telling you, history supports the Bible. Now, again, here in our text, it's telling us where these slaves came from. Cyrene, Alexandria, Egypt, also from Cilicia. So now you remember, do you remember who was from Cilicia? Cilicia, I've heard it pronounced both ways. Do you remember? Saul of Tarsus, right? Tarsus was a city in the province of Cilicia. So no doubt, here's this synagogue that probably was the synagogue that Paul or Saul attended. The Apostle Paul, this was his synagogue. And even though he wasn't a freedman or the relative of a freedman, because he's gonna say, I, I was actually born a Roman citizen. I was born free. But because of the family ties to this city, this was probably his synagogue. Now look with me at verse 10. It says, but they would not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So, if you're taking notes again, write this down. Yielding includes allowing the Holy Spirit to direct your words. If we're going to follow the example of Stephen and live like Stephen lived, the first thing that we're going to have to do is let the Holy Spirit start to work in us and through us to the point that our words now start to become no longer ours, but God through his Holy Spirit speaking through us. 
We become God's mouthpiece. That's what the Bible says when it describes Stephen. Stephen is God's mouthpiece. If you were with us last week, we learned a little bit about this guy, but not a whole lot. We don't know much about Stephen at this point, all that, at all, other than the fact that he was one of the seven Greek men selected by the church to go handle a problem with the Greek people in the church. Let me give you a little bit of an explanation here. If you're reading the book of Acts, just in one chapter alone, Stephen is mentioned three times. In chapter 6 of the book of Acts, we learn in verse 3 that Stephen is a man who is full of the Spirit and wisdom. In verse 5, he's full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Verse 6 tells us that Stephen is a man that is full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 tells us that he's full of grace and power. And then right now in verse 10, I believe, tells us where this power is coming from, where this wisdom is coming from, where his grace comes from, because obviously it's not Stephen doing the work. It's not Stephen's words. It's the Holy Spirit that's speaking through this man, Stephen. Now remember, you got to remember this. The religious leaders of this time are getting pretty ticked off that Christianity is spreading. They are getting upset. Christianity is spreading so much in Jerusalem that even the priests are starting to convert. They're starting to become Christ followers, priests. And this is upsetting this, this, these religious leaders. Every day that their power starts to grow, the, the Christians, the, the power of the testimony of Jesus Christ begins to grow. The power of the religious leaders starts to do what? Shrink. So now it's this war of words in Jerusalem. The religious leaders decide to call Stephen out on the carpet. They're basically doing whatever they've got to do at this point to stop Stephen and the rest of the followers of Jesus from influencing the crowds. Same thing that happened with Jesus, right? And here's something I don't want you to miss. As hard as these extremely intimidating religious leaders tried, they can't shut Stephen up. They can't shut Stephen up. The Bible describes it at the end of verse 10 so that you can't miss it. Do you see the word spirit? Do you see the word spirit? It's capitalized. You notice that? It's capitalized. It's telling us that Stephen's not the one doing the talking. Now it's actually the Holy Spirit that starts to answer uh, the arguments. The Holy Spirit is putting words into Stephen, and Stephen's just repeating those words to the crowd. In other words, God has so much of Stephen that now God is not only in him, but he's working through him, which is exactly what's supposed to happen for every single one of us who follow Jesus Christ. Again, if you're taking notes, write this down. First, God gets a hold of you, and he starts the work in you. Then he starts to work through you as you minister to other people. Look, this is Christianity. I know in the West, we've, we've kind of muddied the water a little bit because we kind of paint ministry as a stage thing. Somebody who goes up and preaches on stage. I can't do what that, I can't do what pastor so-and-so does or I can't do what this teacher does or that Sunday school teacher. So therefore, I just, I'm gonna sit on the sidelines. Look, the way that the church grows, the reason we call it a movement is because I don't wanna grow the church any other way. I don't wanna do that. There's all kinds of things we can do to, to grow a church of, of fans of Jesus. I want followers of Jesus. I don't want an auditorium every single Sunday that's a fan of Jesus. I want a follower of Jesus. And to be a follower of Jesus means, man, you have bought into the message. You might be a doctor. You might be a lawyer. You might be a businessman. You might be a teacher. You might be a coach. But you realize that your call and your purpose is to make disciples. 
Jesus has not called you and set you apart to not share the message. This is something that every single believer is called to do. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are called and commissioned to go be a disciple maker. And here's the best part of this text, and I've kind of already hinted on it. Stephen's just like you and me. Think about it. Stephen never met Jesus face to face. He was introduced to Jesus by one of the disciples. He learned who Jesus was, and he became a follower of Jesus just like we did. He then took what he learned, and he started to teach it to other people. He started to reach other people with it. He started to make an impact. He was making a difference. Three times in one chapter, the Bible is telling us that Stephen is full of something. Right? But what's he full of? He's full of power. He's full of grace. He's full of the words of the Holy Spirit. Stephen is a man that is full of the Holy Spirit. Listen, what Jesus came to do is not just to empty you out. He came to fill you up. And Stephen is a vivid example of this today. Jesus came so that you would be full of his Holy Spirit and that you, because you're full of his Spirit, would be able to minister to other people. Your words, your actions, they would minister to other people. And I really, I, I really feel like some of you in this room need to hear this because you think you can't be used. You sit on the sidelines because you don't think that God can use you. What God wants to do today is to fill you up and for, your, for you to experience the same presence of his Holy Spirit that Stephen experienced. Stephen was just like you. He was just like me. Now listen, I know a lot of times when we start talking about the Holy Spirit, people start getting weird. And that's because in a lot of churches, we've abused the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Or we've made it about something it's not. The whole point of the Holy Spirit is not for this experience right here at the altar like we like to push it so much. I know a lot of old school Pentecostals are going to get real mad, but just listen because I'm very Pentecostal. I'm all about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm all about the infilling of the Holy Spirit. I'm all about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing. It doesn't stop right here. This is not the all-in moment right here. Man, you experience this and it's over. This is just the beginning. I've quoted her time and time again, but Beth Grant says, look, don't show me that you're Pentecostal at the altar. Go show me your Pentecostal outside those doors. Go show me you're full of the Holy Spirit in the everyday work experience that you have. Go show me you're full of the Holy Spirit when you're witnessing to your neighbor or you're at Starbucks and you, all of a sudden you're full of the Holy Spirit. You start sharing the gospel. I don't care what you do right here. I don't care how awesome it was. I don't care how many goosebumps it gave you. If it doesn't translate to outside these doors, I don't know that it was the Holy Spirit. God used Stephen in incredible ways because he was full of the Spirit. God's working so much in this man's life that people start to see it. They're recognizing it. They notice something is different. Can you say that about yourself today? Can you say your neighbor would say, man, there's something different about that person? They're full of something. What is it? Now, if you're reading through the book of Acts for the first time in your life, you started at chapter 1. By the time you get to chapter 6, you're going to notice this theme, and it's repeating here. The words that we're about to read next from the Bible, they sound eerily familiar. Because Jesus was a man full of the Holy Spirit. He ministered to people, right? The religious leaders hated him for it, and they ended up killing him. Peter and John, because they're what? Full of the Holy Spirit. They start to minister to people around them, and the religious leaders called them on the carpet for it. 
The apostles try to minister to people because they're full of the Holy Spirit and God's working through them as well as in them. And the religious leaders do what? Flog them for it. Then Stephen stands up, he starts to minister to people and the exact same script plays out all over again. Look with me at verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now here's what's happening. These guys are putting a false turn to a true statement. What I mean by that is it is true that Stephen was saying that Jesus would destroy the temple and that Jesus was going to change some of the customs of Moses. That part is true. They did that. That's not, they're not saying that they instigated men who came up with that story. No, that was what Stephen was saying. But it's not true that this was against his holy place or holy law, or as verse 11 says, that this was blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now listen, the goal is very simple here. Discredit the minister and destroy the ministry. See how this thing plays out, though, with Stephen against this entire community of the most powerful religious people of that day. Look with me. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. They accused Stephen of saying, this Jesus of Nazareth is going to destroy this place, the temple, right? And then he's going to change the customs, which Moses, Moses delivered. And an important verse here, because it begs a question, did Jesus really say this? Is Stephen preaching the truth? Okay, because there's one thing when preachers get up and they're preaching something that's not God's word and they're starting to invite uh, people who are kind of opposing the message. If they're not preaching God's word, that's all on them. <laughs> you know, that's one thing. If, if a preacher's getting up and he's being faithful and he's preaching God's word and he's experiencing opposition, then that preacher can rest assured, hey, this is God's word and sometimes these things happen. Did did Stephen really quote Jesus accurately? Did, did Jesus really say those things, that he's going to destroy the temple and build it? Well, go back and look at the Gospels here. You know, in Matthew 26, verse 61, and Mark 14, verse 58, tells us that at Jesus' trial, false witnesses came forward. They said this, this fellow said, I'm, a, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. And when the high priest asked him to make an answer to this charge, Jesus remained silent. Matthew 27, 40 and Mark 15, 29 tells us that crowds who passed by the cross while Jesus was dying mocked Jesus and they said things. You, you who destroy the temple and built in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. And if I was Jesus, and I'm not, if I was Jesus, I, I would have said something like, oh, I will. You just wait three days, it's coming. Laugh all you want, it's coming, Right? After I've lost myself for your sake, you watch. But Jesus doesn't do that. And honestly, that's why we love him. That's why we serve him. Jesus has all the power in the universe at his disposal, but he doesn't use it on his enemies until he has given all that holy love can give. He endures it. He endures all of it, mockery. And, and I, real quick, just because we brought up this passage, I, there's two things I want you to apply to yourself here from that story. One, one, the story of Jesus being mocked. One is a warning against misusing scripture as a threat against God. And this is not a rabbit trail. It goes with our text, I promise. Have you ever taken a verse and waved it in God's face and said, okay, <laughs> this is true. Why don't you come down here and get me out of this mess? Now, one of the hardest parts of being a pastor is walking people through difficult seasons. 
I can't relate to every difficult season. I, I've gone through difficult seasons in my own life. Had to take care of my dad for nine years with a brain tumor. Uh, 22 years old, I was bathing my dad, shaving him, and changing his diaper. That was hard. Growing up watching him preach every Sunday, teaching at Northwest University, that was really difficult for me. But one of the, the things that, that I did, and I think a lot of people do, and I'm thankful that I had a spiritual leader in my life who could kind of crowl me back, is I would do this. Okay, God, if this is true, if I'm reading this in the passage, then why don't you come and do it? Right? You said you won't let anybody go through something that they can't handle. Well, guess what? I can't handle this, so why don't you come and fix this mess? Now, you know what that does when we do that? We aren't any different than the passerbyers in this story, those that are walking by and mocking Jesus. And most of the time, we've butchered a text. We've done a poor job at understanding the context. We misunderstand the verse just like they misunderstood Jesus' teaching. So I want to just a warning against misusing Scripture as a threat against God. Number two is uh, another lesson is the lesson of patience and of accepting injustice against ourselves. Because Jesus was misunderstood as much as we'll ever be. (laughs) He was treated unjustly as much as we'll ever be. Jesus could do no right with his critics. For crying out loud, even, even his words of love were turned into mockery for crying out loud. And here's the truth. A lot of, a lot of times in our, our good intentions, they, they may be twisted against us. But remember what Jesus did. He absorbed it. He had this incredible ability of receiving punch after punch and not returning them. Remember that, right? So let's be like Jesus and not the passerby. Back to our text, though. Another verse that supports Stephen's sermon, John 2, 19. It tells us about one situation when Jesus actually spoke words like these. He said he had just driven the, the sellers out of the temple. And the Jews asked him, what sign have you to show us for doing this? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. These are the words of Jesus here. They come back. It it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? And John comments, but he spoke of the temple of his body. Okay? So Jesus meant this. When I die, the temple dies. When I'm destroyed, the temple's destroyed. Look what you know. This whole system that you know, all these sacrifices, all this blood flowing to make atonement for sins, all this priestly activity surrounding the holy place where God's presence dwells, it all stops when I die. You destroy me, and in dying, I destroy the temple. This is why the curtain in the temple tore in two, just as as Jesus died. It was a token of destruction. The walls were coming down. Jesus himself was taking the place of everything in the temple. So everything was about to change. Behold, I make all things new, right? So what Jesus meant when he said, destroy this temple in three days, I'm going to raise it up, was that he himself was taking the place of the temple by dying for sin once and for all, by rising from the dead to reign as the everlasting priest and Lord of glory forever. Come on, that's worth getting excited about. (laughs) When I die, the temple dies, the system dies. And when I rise, I am the temple. I am the sacrifice for sins. I am the priest. I am the go between with God. I'm the presence and the radiance of his glory. The temple is finished. So, yep, Jesus sure did say what Stephen's preaching. Jesus said that he would destroy the temple. Now, and they set up false witnesses who said this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. So, again, they didn't make this up. They just have twisted it out of context. Verse 14, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. 
verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So just so you know, this verse, it's a transition verse. It's transitioning to the next scene where we're gonna pick up next week. In the middle of Stephen being treated unjustly, his face was like the face of an angel. Now, this could mean that his changed countenance reflected the fact that God was standing with him. God was with him. God was on the side of Stephen here. But it could also indicate Stephen's intimacy with God. And, and the fact that Stephen was actually being, being a faithful representation of Moses. The leaders were accusing him of demeaning Moses, and yet Stephen's actually reflecting the likeness of Moses. It's a little ironic, isn't it? God has a sense of humor. You're going to accuse him of demeaning Moses, and I'm going to give him uh, a reflection of Moses. Moses had to cover his own face with a veil because it shone so brightly after he spent time in the presence of God. In the next chapter, Stephen's going to actually teach them how they need to understand Moses. It's, It's an amazing sermon. It's like Stephen got to write his own funeral. It is the most incredible passage in all the book of Acts. Now, this, this is the end of chapter 7. In the accusation they make against Stephen that's going to be set up, it sets up for his sermon in, in or the end of chapter 6, sorry, sets up his sermon in the beginning of chapter 7. Because after hearing the accusation, the high priest in verse 1 of chapter 7 is going to say, are these things so? It's what you're saying. You're going to stand by what you're saying? kind of like, I'm going to give you a chance. And then he launches into 59 verses. 59 verses after verse 1 in the next chapter. He goes into this incredible historical witness to share the gospel based on the Jewish history to that nation in Jerusalem. And uh, here's what I want you to, to know, too, going into that. Some people, I hear this all the time, some people say, I'm going to wait for an open door. I want to, I want to share my faith, but I haven't seen it. The Lord has to open the door. And, and I, I do get that to an extent. You know, we want to be led by the Holy Spirit. But you know what's interesting about this story is that this guy, he'd take a crack in the window. <laughs> Stephen take a crack in the window. He doesn't need an open door. He just needs a little crack and he's going to jump all over it. Bam, he goes with it. It's noteworthy. Why? Because they said Stephen's speaking against not only God, not only the temple, but against Moses. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he'd received the law of the covenant, God coming down to the people after having this intimate conversation, this intimate communication with God. He comes down, the Bible says that his face shone brightly. These Jewish leaders should have looked at Stephen and thought, oh my word. This is just like we read about what happened to Moses. It's happening to this guy because that would show them he's not, he's not against Moses. He's like Moses. This fella, he's shining brightly like Moses was when he had the intimate contact with God, the face of an angel. And you know what I love about this is it's Dr. Luke who's writing this. And you remember who helped Luke write this? Do you remember who gave him the information, the history? Paul. Paul did. You know who's sitting there. We're going we're gonna to learn about it more next week. Paul would have been right there watching Stephen get stoned. Paul would have remembered his face shining like that. Would have been ingrained in his memory till the day he died. It's Paul who's helping Dr. Luke write this. But here's the big point of what I want to show you today. Stephen was a holy troublemaker. He was, man. He was a boat rocker. He wasn't afraid to back down. He's not willing to be silent. He was going to stand up and speak out no matter what the consequences. 
And I'm just gonna remind you, church, when the apostles were willing to stand up to speak out, it got a lot of people angry. And I'm not telling you to go pick fights on Facebook. I'm not, don't do that. It's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying we gotta be bold. We gotta be willing to speak the truth. All right? When the apostles, or when Stephen was gonna stand up and speak out, or James and John, Andrew, Peter, when they were gonna stand up, they got in trouble. When the apostles and Jesus and all of the followers stood up and spoke out, the book of Acts is just one example after another that it was costly. It costed them something to stand up and speak out. It's sad to say, but even today in 2023 in America, when you are willing to stand up and you are willing to speak out, it may cost you a little bit. And you should be willing to pay that price. I wanna challenge you about your willingness to rock the boat just a little bit this morning as we close. Maybe you go to work with some people who don't know Jesus. Maybe you go to school with someone who doesn't know Jesus. Maybe they're not a part of a church. They don't give it one whoop about anything that has to do with Christianity. Can I give you maybe an example of, of what rocking the boat in a situation might look like? Tomorrow, you tell the people, look, I'm gonna start a Bible study. I'm gonna go look at Acts chapter six and I have a couple questions for you and a little prayer at the end. Maybe that's just gonna start the movement and stir the water enough that it gets a hold of somebody's heart and starts to impact their soul. I also wanna let you know this too. You're going to experience people denying your message. Don't think that because you're gonna be full of the Holy Spirit that that's, you're gonna have, you're gonna be batting 100. No, 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 no. People will deny the message when you share it. That shouldn't stop you though. Right? Evangelism is not something, uh, this, this next part of the sermon is a little different than I normally do because I, I want to end, be very personal with you and, and tell you what this text has done to me as, as your spiritual pastor and your spiritual leader right now. So this has challenged me quite a bit. If you know me by now, you know I love the word. I'm all about discipleship. Man, it is my heartbeat. I just, I love seeing people grow in their faith. A part of discipleship, though, is seeing people become soul savers. Seeing people become disciple makers. And if evangelism is not something that we do well as a church, everything else that we do is going to be sterile. Sterile. You know what I mean. Sterile. 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 There we go. (laughs) Everything else that we do is going to be sterile. To that end, the Holy Spirit's been working on my own heart. And I've had to take an honest look at what hindrances may be getting in the way of evangelism at New Heights Church. I'm seeking God to see, God, how can we grow in these areas? How, How can I see? I've told you so many times before, our church is not an organization. I did not come to pastor an organization. I came to pastor a movement. A movement. I believe that this is an area right now in our church that we need to grow in. And, and I'm not talking about big events. I'm not talking about hosting some huge event, bringing in an evangelist. I'm not ho- talking about let, let's bring the people onto our campus and do, do these events and then we'll preach Jesus at them. I'm, I'm talking about those that call themselves Christ followers and those that say they belong to New Heights Church going out and being an evangelist in their everyday life. And so Again, I, I believe this is an area we need to grow in, and this is something the Lord has spoken to me about. So I want to close today with a promise to you. 
okay? Your pastor is making a promise to his congregation that we are going to become more evangelistic. And here's, here's four things that I want to leave with you with. Number one, we're going, to, we're going to be more intentional. We need to make evangelism a habit in our own lives, and, and it won't happen by chance. I want our church to be a movement, but in order to do that, you have to be moving yourself. You have to embrace the Great Commission in your own life. My preaching on Sunday, our Sunday morning experience, it should not be the end of the evangelistic conversation with your friends. Look, it's great to bring your non-believing friends to our church services. I want you to do that. But if your entire evangelism program consists of reliance on the church, there is going to be problems. Our Sunday could be the beginning, but it's not the end of the conversation. You understand? Number two, we're going to be spirit-led. We absolutely have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will lead us to speak up in situations that might make us uncomfortable, but there are times when the door just, just uh, does not open without the Holy Spirit. We need to accept that most conversations are not going to end with the sinner's prayer, And again, that is not a sign that the Spirit is absent. We need to be faithful and obedient to when the Holy Spirit opens the door for us to share. Number three, we're going to do a better job at resourcing individuals. This is really on me and my staff. A little practical guidance goes a long way, doesn't it? We need the Holy Spirit. We can't do anything without the Holy Spirit. God God has also provided so many helps for us today. So much help out there. And we as the leadership of the church, we need to be more strategic in getting those resources to you, right? Simply training people to be able to share their story. I mean, I can't tell you how much God used Holland America, yes, the cruise line, Holland America in my life to help me become a better witness. I worked for them every summer Uh, during Bible college and seminary, and I had to take all these public speaking classes. And I had to take all these classes that helped me uh, pitch Holland America to people. And I took some of those things that I learned in sharing my own testimony. And I cannot tell you how much that helped me. Just little things like simple training, simply training people to be able to share their story. So many different creative ways to help share the gospel. We need to do a better job. When I say we, I'm talking about me and my staff. We need to do a better job getting those resources out to you, okay? And, and, I'll, and I want to say this because this is a pitch for small groups. In the fall, I'm going to be leading a small group, and it's a simple small group. It's just if you want to learn how to share your story, then join this small group because we're going to talk about that. We're going to give some resources and tools for how you can share your testimony in conversation. When you're at a Starbucks, you're talking to somebody, there's, there's ways that we're going to give you some tools and resources that are going to help you share that story. Uh, Tim Bubnick, uh, one of our, well, was a board member. He's served as a board member for forever, been a part of this church forever. He's got his testimony memorized. Somebody helped him come up with it. He's got this way of explaining it, and it's awesome. I love it. I love it. Somebody helped him come up with that, Somebody, and he's used that. He, he can be in any kind of situation, and all of a sudden, if he gets a, not an open door, but a crack in the window, <laughs> he's got that ready and loaded. He's got that to share. It's, it's really incredible. Number four, the last one. Here it is. We need to be better at mentoring. The best evangelism books, the best courses, they're not going to change the evangelistic DNA of a church. Only watching other people as they share Jesus is going to teach us how to do it better. That's how I learned. 
Classes are great, books are good, but the best way to learn to share your faith is actually through discipleship. Listen to me. Having spiritual mentors in the church and watching them. I was discipled by my dad. My dad discipled me. I watched him live that, live out what he preached on Sunday every single week. He shared his faith with anyone and everyone. He didn't need an open door. He just needed a crack in the window. This was my dad. I, I, when I was little, it embarrassed me. As I got older, I loved it. I couldn't, I knew invite, if my dad would come watch my t-ball games, I'd get all nervous because I would just know, I mean, I'd be up at the plate and I'd be looking at my dad because I'm thinking he's going to start sharing Jesus. I just know it. I just know it. My dad was so strategic. He signed up to be my coach. I always thought for years he signed up to be my wrestling coach. I always thought for years it was to pour into me. It was. But there was another motive. He actually used it to evangelize, and he did. There were four people from my wrestling team who came to know Jesus and ended up coming to our church through it. He just always wanted to evangelize. And, and I watched my dad. I grew up, and I watched him do it, and that helped me become someone who shares my faith. But not everyone has a father who's going to disciple them. But the church has been called to make disciples. So to my saints here this morning, to my to my veteran saints, to those who have grown up in the church, please hear me out. Please, please. Because I, I, I say we're going to be a multi-generational church. And by the way, that's one of the hardest things to do. It is. Because you have to take all these different cultures and bring them together. And it's so hard, but it's worth the fight. Because we can't just be a church of young people. Please, all of you who have been at this church and you, you're seasoned in your faith, you are needed. You are needed. Look at this. God is bringing young people into our church. We need you to come alongside us. We need you to mentor. You've been there. You've done it. We need you. I don't need you just to fill a seat on Sunday. I need you to get active because you are full of the Holy Spirit and you have got wisdom beyond our years. We need you in this church. We do. We need a partner with one another, learning from each other as we, as we take Jesus to our neighbors. Man, this, this keeps us accountable, encourages us as we, we see the work of the Spirit through our brothers and sisters in Jesus. We've got to get better. So th- those are my, that's my promise to you. This is something the Holy Spirit's been working in my heart that I, I have to implement in this church. I want to end with this quote. Corey Ten Boom says this, trying to do the Lord's work in your own strength is the most confusing, exhausting, and tedious of all work. But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, then, then the ministry of Jesus just flows out of you flows out of you that's what we want again i'm going to close the service and we're going to pray and this you're officially dismissed if you have to go our worship team's going to be up here they're going to lead us in a few more songs part of our culture on sunday morning is we always create space for people to respond to the holy spirit so our altars are going to be open and i'm going to give everyone an opportunity to just seek and pursue god and and if you haven't been filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm even going to ask if I have any staff members that are here. And I'm talking, again, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself because this is the sermon for next week. So I'll just stop. But the, the easiest way to be full of the Holy Spirit is to pray that he fills you up. Pray that he fills you up. Get, your, get, your, get into God's word because that gives the Holy Spirit an open door into your life. It gives him access into your heart. Get into God's word. Get into his presence. Give him some time and he will minister to you. Father God, we love you. (laughs) We love you so much. You're a good God. 
We just praise you right now. And Lord, I pray for everybody in this church who is a Christ follower. I pray that they would constantly be yielding and submitting themselves to the Holy Spirit and that you would continue to use them. God, you have placed them in strategic places at their work, in their neighborhood, because you have a plan to use them. Our purpose is to bring as many people to heaven as we can. Pray that we would embrace that today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.